0: Welcome, everyone. So are you tired of the same old ways of seeing things? Well, you've come to the right place. Here we cut through the world of surface appearances and look for the light that's rare in the depths. Here we dive into the dark waters where strange creatures move. Here we're free to be that foolish knight who lunges at windmills and who lights up the world with his magical vision. It's all too much, says George Harrison. That's true, but all the more reason to jump into it and intoxicate yourself with life's infinite profusion. After all, you don't discover new lands by sticking close to the shore, do you? This is The Wisdom Of, and coming up today, the final episode. My Top 6 Thinkers and Artists. Hey, how's it going, everybody? I hope you're all doing well. And again, thanks for listening. Okay, so before I start, I want to make an announcement of sorts. So here at The Wisdom Of, we've decided to, uh, to slow things down a bit. For those of you who, who don't know, we've been doing at least one episode every single week for four years. I think we're close to uh, 250 episodes or so, all said and done. Now, that's an enormous output, especially when you're dealing with the kind of uh, subject matter that we talk about. We've tried our best not just to disseminate universal ideas about human life, but also to provide important uh, connections and uh, insights along the way. Now, admittedly, not everything is entirely accurate. I'm sure there's been an expert or two that's, uh, that's noticed that. But in our defense, that wasn't our goal. Our goal was to try to show how it's possible to interpret and appropriate ideas for ourselves and to make them, in one way or another, useful in our lives. Anyway, it seems enough of you have taken this to heart, as I have to say, the numbers that we've reached are well beyond what we imagined. But, um, that said... As wonderful and as fun as it is, it takes a lot of work and reflection to churn out this kind of material every single week. So, anyway, the the short of it is, is that from from now on, the wisdom of is going to change gears. Life is short and there's a lot to do. So, we will likely publish from time to time, but it certainly won't be anything like it's been. Now, for those of you who've been uh, who've been there since early on, we sincerely thank you for your loyalty and your interest, and we hope you keep tuning in from time to time. And uh, for those of you who are relatively new to us, welcome to the podcast, and I hope our backlog of material will keep you busy for a long, long time. Okay, so in this episode, to commemorate all that we've done, I thought I'd try to do something different and do a kind of uh, top six list. I know I couldn't even reduce it to five. But anyway, I don't really mean top six, but what I mean is just that I want to talk a bit about my own six personal favorite thinkers and artists and why it is I find them so incredible. Now, on this list, I have uh, two Greeks, a Russian, a German, a Spaniard, and a French Algerian. And um, I'd say that if you've listened to this podcast with any regularity, you know who these people are. Okay, so uh, let's just get right into it. And uh, I'm doing this chronologically, not in any particular order of importance. So the first one is the broad one, better known, of course, as Plato. I say broad one because that's roughly what Plato translates as. Now, it's said that he may have been given this name because of his uh, great physical girth. But you know what? It could equally and more aptly apply to the enormous circumference of his ideas. I mean, I'd say that never before and since, maybe his student Aristotle is his only equal, but never before has any thinker covered so much intellectual terrain. His scope is truly mystifying. I really love two things about Plato in particular. First of all, I love his idealism. And what I mean by that in this case is there is in almost all of his works a spirit to to push beyond the way things are. Whether that's to push beyond, to become a, a better and deeper person, or to seek greater heights intellectually and spiritually. For Plato things could always be better there's a better you that needs realizing there's a better and a higher love that needs to be reached and there's a better place or future that needs cultivating and um the second thing i really love about plato is the medium of his message what i mean by that is that he doesn't write prose or in a uh, in any kind of boring essay style no He writes dialogues, and that's super interesting and suggestive. What it suggests is that philosophy for Plato is conversational. It begins in the marketplaces and at parties with real people with different ideas and starting points and personalities all getting into it. This is not philosophy from uh, on high, from the pulpit. It's Street philosophy. Now, I find that incredibly judicious about Plato, even if he does occasionally have his own lofty and uh, conservative moments. And actually, at times, Plato does such an impartial job with these dialogues and characters that sometimes he puts into the mouth of a character incredibly persuasive views that he himself wouldn't agree with. Now, that's incredible. It speaks to someone who puts ideas above himself. I don't know, maybe another way of expressing all this is that what makes Plato so so damn great is that he's an absolute artist when it comes to doing philosophy. The dialogues, the characters, the setting, the, the mythological and uh, poetical references, the whole form and craftsmanship of these works— this is what makes him so forever fresh and stimulating and even subversive. In our day of uh, academic and uh, philosophical rigidity and formalism, Plato offers the relief of ambiguity and interpretation and, dare I say it, inspiration and beauty. Okay, well, so the second thinker I really love is. Well, actually, his own school wasn't too far from Plato's, actually, and that is Epicurus. Now, I'm aware that Epicurus isn't as well-known to most as uh, Plato is, but in my humble opinion, he should be. Not because of the breadth of his works, but actually for sort of the opposite reason. Because of the powerful simplicity and straightforwardness of his message. You see, In our contemporary age where there is a rampant and infinite consumption of of luxury goods and where nothing is ever enough, Epicurus teaches us about the the limits of desire and about the attainability of the simple and happy, anxiety-free life. He teaches us that we don't have to look very far for what we truly need. All around us, nature abounds with the resources necessary and sufficient for our well-being. Once we understand this, once we understand that it's the the simple and readily available things that we can count on one hand that matter most, then we'll have no desire for more, since more cannot give us anything that we do not already have. Imagine that. Imagine feeling totally complete and self-sufficient onto yourself amazing this is a powerful message one that can radically transform our lives and quell the tempest of our unnecessarily agitated soul and um i'd say that the other incredible thing about epicurus is that he brings us back to our senses and to the pleasure that the sensory world affords you see for him everything that makes up the cosmos including ourselves is ultimately just just material and so will for that reason very soon break up and be destroyed there is no immaterial soul and there is no afterlife we're physical and sensual beings through and through well what better way to bring us back to earth and to the primacy of our sense organs what better way, while we're alive, to get us to appreciate the beauty of nature and of the world around us? Really, I'd say that, ultimately, Epicurus' message is one that teaches gratitude. When we realize that life is narrowly confined between birth and death, we won't take the sweet colors and the smells and the tastes of life for granted anymore. Okay. Well, so the third person on my list today is the great Russian writer Dostoevsky. Now, there's just uh, so much to say about him, and that would take way too long, so let me just say it like this. Every time I read his novels, I feel like I need to take a shower and rub myself clean. I need to, to cleanse myself of my impurities. I feel I need to try to relearn what it was like to live innocently and purely free of duplicitous aims and free of a divided and hypocritical soul. In short, reading Dostoevsky makes me want to be, well, a better person. Now, I think that the greatest example to learn from in this regard is the iconic character Ivan from Dostoevsky's masterpiece, the brothers Karamazov. You know, Ivan, the the eagle who lives above the messy crowds below. Now, I won't go into any details here. If you're interested, you can uh, check out our much earlier episode on this great novel. But I think one of the major things to learn from the Ivan character is how to be aware of and guard against judgments we might have of others that are the product of our own deficiencies and insecurities. When we can't sit at a table with others because, in one way or another, we feel superior, it's often because we lack a humanity that others have. When we preach universal love but can't stand our neighbor, it's because we still haven't gotten over our pride and our ego. If we can't love others with their streaks of the ugly, it's because we can't accept our own ugliness. In other words, it's because we've divorced ourselves from our true and base nature. Now, this sort of stuff is all too common. But here's the thing. One of the most powerful things about Dostoevsky is that he makes clear what eventually happens to those of us who persist in our duplicitous and hypocritical ways what happens is that we eventually alienate ourselves and self-destruct. Pride and uh, self-certainty, those are dangerous things. After all, what is pride other than to be incapable of receiving anything, including others? And what is self-certainty other than, than a lack of humility and openness to the world? and ultimately what are both of these other than an inability to truly love and to accept and so to be a better person than we are now this is why i love and continually learn from the great large soul that is dostoevsky okay well so the fourth thinker that i really admire should come as no surprise to the uh, to the loyal listeners of this podcast and that is the the little pastor, as he was called in his youth, and the author of the dizzying and inexhaustible Zarathustra. I'm talking about the one and only Nietzsche. Now, we talk so much about Nietzsche throughout the years that I don't want to repeat myself too much, and so I'll keep this very short. But I guess the thing that stands out to me, and I say that only uh, half-truthfully because almost everything stands out to me about Nietzsche— but the thing that maybe stands out to me the most is his counsel to us to really learn to love life as it is, in the here and now, and not wait for some uh, better life to come. You see, for Nietzsche, when we live according to some uh, transcendent future, we alienate ourselves from this life, from, from living in the present and on this earth. And this alienation keeps us away from not just the pulse, but also the temporality of life. For Nietzsche, we have to affirm this life as, as much as possible, and that includes its great beauty, of course, but also its dark and unintelligible character. The problem, though, is that for him, both philosophy and religion, at least historically, has taught us that the the body and the senses and time and anything ephemeral and material is not as valuable as the immaterial and the eternal. But again, this comes at a detriment to our life such as it is. No, real philosophy or wisdom for Nietzsche is wisdom of the earth. Or, as Zarathustra says, real wisdom is tragic wisdom. The bottom line is that, is that to be afraid of time and death is to be afraid of life. To really live, we must love. And to really love, that means not just accepting life as it is, but it also means throwing oneself wholeheartedly into the energy and the rhythms of the earth. Okay. Well, so the fifth person on my list might seem a bit strange and uh, a bit idiosyncratic, but uh but hear me out. Besides, uh, it's my list, so I can do what I want. Okay. So it's the great painter Picasso. Now, maybe the best way to start here is with a um, a personal anecdote. So my infatuation with Picasso actually started only about 10 or 12 years ago when I, when I went to Barcelona with my crazy co-pilot here at The Wisdom Of. By the way, where are you? Oh, you're, you're probably watching YouTube. Wait a sec, uh, I got a channel there. And uh, check it out, by the way, if you're interested, it's called Philosophy With A View. Anyway, so so back to my story. So while we were there, we went to the Picasso Museum, and as incredibly interesting as it was, everything was uh, pretty normal until I got to the very end of the exhibit. Now that's when I saw his renditions of Velázquez's painting Las Meninas from uh, 1656 or something. Now, I I wish you could see it, and just look it up if you're interested. But those renditions are the most absolutely absurd recreations of that original painting. I don't think I've ever been that blown away by something. I couldn't believe that someone of Picasso's skill and stature would would reinterpret that painting in those ways. What he did is he, he reduced or... um. Transfigured a supremely detailed and exquisite classical painting into well, into something a a child might do. Or maybe not quite, but but the gall, the courage, the the originality, the striking presentation, the, the feeling of those paintings. Amazing. Okay, but so What's my point, though? Well, in that moment, he taught me something. All of a sudden, and from that moment on, I felt encouraged to really let go, to really break free from from parroting others, and to begin to see and to completely interpret things in my own way. As uh, Picasso later said, what I did might be detestable for a proper Meninas painter, but This was my meninas. So what Picasso did is he taught us just how free we really are to see and to appropriate things for ourselves. Suffice it to say, for me, Picasso's courage and uh, interpretive power and his delightfully crazy and absurd paintings have proved to be hugely influential in my life. In many ways, I can say it actually motivated The Wisdom Of. Actually, you know, one of Picasso's reproductions of this painting hangs over me here at The Wisdom Of compound. A little reminder and a pick-me-up when I need to be truly creative. Okay, well, so we're almost done. But not quite. There's one last individual and again if you've listened to this podcast with any regularity you know who it is. It's the writer Albert Camus. Now here again I'm faced with the challenge of not repeating myself since I think we basically covered every single one of his main works. So again let me be brief and to the point. So let me start by being um completely honest. I think details withstanding, that Camus' outlook is, is pretty much right. Whatever name we want to give it, I do think that we live in an absurd world. That's to say, I do think, as Camus says, that there is no ultimate meaning, however much we want there to be. I do think that our cries fall on deaf ears, or no ears at all, at least from a cosmic point of view. Now, this is tough to hear, but it does take courage to acknowledge it. Okay, but you still might think that this sounds uh, pretty uh, pessimistic. You might think that Camus is uh, some kind of nihilist. Well, if you think this, you'd be wrong. You see, what makes Camus so incredibly amazing to me is that while he acknowledged the, the ultimate meaninglessness of things, there is absolutely nothing nihilistic about his larger view. No, for him it's precisely because we're all alone on this planet without recourse to any larger transcendent hope that we must do what we can to help each other out. Maybe another way to put this is that we're all in the um in the same boat together, united by a common humanity and a difficult situation that unites us all, namely our struggles and our finitude. Or to use a uh, Camus' words, our blood-drenched mathematics. So, we have to act in solidarity and do what we can collectively to resist suffering. Actually, in a way, you might say that for Camus, it's through the very attempt to alleviate the suffering of others that we create a force that resists the meaninglessness of life. Now, that force is love, real love, The very opposite of the kind of love that Ivan professes in the Brothers Karamazov. No, this is the kind of love that extends a real helping hand to our brothers and sisters in combating the inscrutable forces of life. It's the kind of love that enjoins us to hold hands with one another under an indifferent sky and walk the path of sympathy and compassion. As uh, Camus himself says absurdity is king, but love saves us from it. Thanks for listening.